Welcome to the Shema Podcast, the podcast for the perplexed, where Torah insights intertwine through personal stories as well as interviews with leading Torah scholars demonstrate the empowering qualities of Torah and mitzvot. For more great Torah learning through Torch, the Torah Outreach Center of Houston, go to torchweb.org. Now to the show. I am sitting across from someone that I greatly admire, that I am so appreciative that I can call a dear friend, the Executive Director of Torch, Rabbi Ari Wolby. Before I begin, I want to say that I have spoken with many of his colleagues at Torch, and when they describe his work schedule, from what he does from when he wakes up in the morning to when he goes to bed, they all had very similar stories to tell. And I will tell you that just by listening to this man's work ethic, it made me feel physically exhausted and made me feel like I had to take a nap after just listening to it. So thank you for being here. I'm looking forward to spending some time with you, learning from you, and allowing others to do the same. Thank you, Dan. It's an honor to be here. I hope and pray that one day I will live up to your high accolades and your introduction I strive to work hard. I strive to do a good job, and hopefully one day I'll be successful. From what I hear, it's pretty nonstop. I need to find out what your your supplement regimen is in order to keep your energy level so high. I think it's just your total commitment and love of the Jewish people. That probably is what fuels you. We're recording this interview in my home in Kingwood, Texas, which if you're not familiar with the Houston area, we are in the northeast quadrant of Houston. And all the Jewish communities, the roofs are all on the exact opposite side of Houston. When we, we moved in this house about four years ago. We custom built this house. We picked out all the flooring, countertops, put so much effort and care into everything we wanted for the house to look like. We bought new furniture. We had a decorator come out and select the paint colors. And she found artwork for the walls and did our drapes and all these amazing things. And when we moved in, I decided I want to become Shomer Shabbat. And we became Shomer Shabbat. And I would say probably like a month later, we find out from the school that my daughter is in a play at the elementary school right down the street on a Saturday. On Shabbos afternoon, we walk down the street, we stand in line, and I see that they are collecting everyone's money to see the play to go in. And of course, I'm not carrying my wallet. I can't do a business transaction. And I get up to the front and I have to explain to someone. And out here, no one has any idea what an observant Jew is or how they live. They've had no exposure to it. So I get to the line it's my turn. I say, I, I don't have any money with me, which is an easy out. And she's like, well, th- that's okay. Can you just sign your name right here? And we'll have you send us the money at a later date. And now I'm thinking, I have to explain to this person why I can't sign my name, which there was no way to do it. I just said, I can't sign my name. And everyone in line is getting frustrated. What is this guy's problem? You know, what is he doing? And finally, the guy behind me got frustrated and just said, here, here, I'll pay for his family. Go inside. When I got home that day, it was so disheartening because I realized I'm in this home that I put so much care into to design and I can't stay here. And it was a lot of anguish over the last four years to where we're so excited and delighted that we're filing at that place now. We're ready to move in the community. When you have such an, un- an incredible challenge as you had in that experience particularly, and I'm sure you've had dozens, if not hundreds of others, of challenging things where you have to sort of explain why are you the weirdo here? 
who just can't do anything. <laughs> when the family wants to get together, you're not there. And, you know, it's like you can't participate in so many things that happen on, on, on Shabbos. I want you to know that that's usually the indication you're doing the right thing. Because when someone does the wrong thing, usually they don't get so much pushback. Um, the Yetzahara, the evil inclination has no problem. When, when someone does something that is dishonest, he's like, I'll, I'll succeed your way. I'll get you even, I'll, I'll, get, I'll give you more success. You know, when someone does the right thing, we're always faced with challenges. And whenever you have that elevation of holiness, you'll have the challenge trying to knock it down. Shabbos is the greatest gift God gave us. God tells us, the, the, the Talmud records how God said to Moses, Matana tova yeshli I have the greatest gift. It's hidden in my treasure. And I want to give it to the Jewish people. And it's called Shabbos. Shabbos Shema. Its name is Shabbos. And that's going to be the special gift I give to the Jewish people. So when you embark on a new mission of observance of Shabbos and elevating your connection with the Almighty, what do you think? The Yetzirah is just going to sit back and say, sure, Dan, <laughs> step all over me. No problem. No, he's going to make it difficult. And I'm sure there are hundreds of challenges that you've experienced in your four years living in this house where Shabbos is sometimes a struggle because, and it, and it shouldn't be. It's the greatest day in the world. You know, a great rabbi once heard say, if you take, you know, those big water coolers and you have a spout on the bottom, what happens if you have one of those that has six so that, you know, people can take it one time? You know, if you have six spouts, it's, it's great. So six, you know, players can, can fill up their cups at one time. So you say, you know, I have a great idea. Let me add a seventh and then I'll have more water, right? We all know that you're not going to have more water. All that will happen is that it'll empty out the water quicker. We have six days a week. God says on those six days, work your tail off. Do everything you need to do the entire six days, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Shabbos la Hashem but Shabbos is for Hashem. Shabbos is a day for us to invest in our relationship with God, with our family, with our friends. We have all the greatest delicacies. Shabbos is it. So if you had an extra spout on the seventh day, you tr- so all you're doing is emptying out the bucket quicker because what's designated for a person to earn during the, that year is already predestined for Rosh Hashanah. He's not going to earn a penny more or a penny less because he worked that day of Shabbos. On the contrary, our sages tell us that there's not going to be any blessings. So he will earn less. There's not going to be any blessing from what the person earns on Shabbos. Right? The source of all blessing is Shabbos. If you want to know what infuses the rest of the week, it's Shabbos. So I'm giving you a pat in the back, a virtual pat in the back from across the table. Keep, keep the fight real and, and, and keep it going because that is the fight of our lives. I, I know you didn't ask this question, but I want to share with you my passion for Jewish outreach. Okay. When I was about 16 or 17 years old, it was the first time that I was fully understanding a single line of Talmud. I mean, I, I, I broke my teeth. I was, I, was, I was born in Israel, but I was raised in New York. And reading ancient Aramaic texts is not always the easiest thing for an American boy. And I can read it, but to understand it, and then to understand beyond the actual translation of the words, the deeper meaning behind it. And then you have the commentaries of Rashi and Tosafot, seeing the early commentators and then the later comment. And and my mind was blown. And I remember jumping out of my seat and shaking my study partner. I'm like, get excited. This is amazing. Can you imagine? This is the greatest thing in the world. And I started learning much more. I started like, this is, this is incredible. And I couldn't get enough. I could not get enough. It was so exhilarating. It is so uh, powerful. And then I started learning about mitzvahs. And I felt that, you know, I grew up in a, in a Shomer Shabbos home. I never had a challenge with observance of Shabbos. I never had a challenge. I, I've never gone past the Burger King or a McDonald's and said, ooh, 
I really want a cheeseburger. I've, I've never had that temptation. And I, I always tell my students, I say, you realize that your reward in heaven will be much greater than mine? Like you can say every single time you pass the Burger King, I didn't eat it and I wanted it. And I can go in and say, you know, down the block from the torch center is a McDonald's and I've never gone in. And God will say, well, that was never your challenge. That you know, I'm not going to get one ounce of reward for it. You realize how, how unbelievable that is? So when I started understanding a single mitzvah, the mitzvah of tefillin, the mitzvah of mezuzah, the mitzvah of Shabbos, the mitzvah of family purity, I was like mind blown. I was like, you realize that the Jewish people have the greatest gift in the world in the Torah. You know what the whole world is running after? Every single, there's not a human being on planet earth that doesn't seek pleasure. Every human being seeks pleasure. The greatest form of pleasure is happiness. And Judaism is obsessed with happiness. Everything about Judaism is happiness. And if we understand every single mitzvah properly, we will see how it is an ingredient for happiness. And you know what? It's an amazing thing. As soon as I learned these things, you know, I put on tefillin every day, but I didn't know why I was putting it on. I wore tzitzis every day. I never even had a temptation not to wear tzitzis. There's something called FFB, which is from from birth. I call it FFH, from from habit. I had no idea why I did it. The minute I learned it and I was listening to lectures about these about these different mitzvahs and suddenly it hit me. I'm like, oh my goodness, we have the keys to happiness. And how in the world can I be selfish and say to myself, you know what? I'm not into Jewish outreach. And I called my father. I remember exactly where I was. And I said to my father, I got it. I, you know, it's like in, in Hebrew, they have a, a, a saying is like, nafal ha'asimon, the coin has dropped. The idea was that you put your coin into the telephone when the other person picked up the phone, it dropped. That's when you were charged. And I remember telling my father, how come I never knew this till now? How come I never knew what the true meaning of Jewish marriage is? What's the true meaning of kosher? Hey, well, it's the law. So does it have a kosher symbol? Does it not have a kosher symbol? What's behind it? Why in the world should there be a kosher symbol? What's the significance of every single mitzvah in going to, you know, behind the scenes? Open up the curtains. And look at what's going on behind the scenes. And many times people just judge Judaism and perhaps different customs that we do just by like, well, oh yeah, because we're, we're extremists or because we're, no, we're obsessed with happiness. And it's the only thing that Judaism is really focused on. Our relationship with God is the key to our happiness. You know, many people think that external means are what's going to fulfill them, with their, meaning their happiness. I'll buy a new car and then I'll be happy. I'll get the new iPhone, I'll be happy. I'll build a new house, I'll be happy. I'll go on this cruise and in a fancy vacation, fly first class, then I'll be happy. All of these things, or I'll amass all of this money and then I'll be happy. Show me a person who's had all of those and show me a righteous, poor Torah scholar in Jerusalem and I'll show you the difference of happiness. I've seen a man, I've gone to see him in the old, in the, in the old city of Jerusalem, a man who probably can't scratch two shekels together. Such a poor man. And I walked into his house because someone in the United States asked me to bring him some money. And I came into him and the glow on this man's face, the shine, the love, the happiness that was pouring out from him and his wife was like, it's like, it's happiness on steroids. And here's a guy who's living in a small, I mean, this little part of your kitchen that we're sitting in is the size of his house. And I'm not exaggerating. This was his house. And it was so small and cramped, filled with 1 billion tons of happiness. And it, you can feel it with your fingers. You can feel the happiness and the joy. And he doesn't have means. He doesn't have a car. And he doesn't have 
you know, a satellite radio. And he doesn't, he doesn't have all of these things. He has 1000% joy. It doesn't mean that we're, we're, you know, it's in a way, it seems foreign to us, you know. So, so Rabbi, are you suggesting that we should get rid of all of our, no, God gave it to us. God gave it to us to enjoy. But look at the irony. We have today in this world that we're living in, 2020, we have more wealth in the United States than ever in the history of mankind. I mean, even the poor person who's on Medicaid and food stamps has more than a king had 300 years ago. You can get, they can get on any Metro bus. They can probably get free tickets to a baseball game and a football game and a basketball game because they give charity as well. And they can get a free television from the government and a free cell phone from the government. It's unbelievable. And yet, that's the poor people. Think of the people who – it's unbelievable. Like, like J.P. Morgan or, or one of the richest people in the world from the turn of the last century, like came in one of our homes, that they would think that we were one of the top industrialists of our century. Like right. how do you live like this? What did you do? And yet we have more people on medication for anxiety and depression in our generation than ever before in the history of the world. More in the United States than any other country. Did you see the survey that came out last year? It was a survey done where they surveyed millennials and it was some crazy stat. Like I want to say 55, 60% of millennials said they were depressed. And when they asked the, the top two reasons given on why they were depressed, one of them was intermittent Wi-Fi access. And the second was low cell phone battery life. How sad is our state? Right. Uh, of mankind. But it's the nature of we by default, if we don't train ourselves, we can take things for granted. And, be, and, you know, our kids grew up with technology and that becomes the baseline. And we just take things for granted. And sadly for our children, it is the baseline. When our children look at us and we're looking at our cell phones instead of looking at them or they're calling our names and we're just finishing up an email and not giving them the proper attention, then they think, you know what, maybe that cell phone is more important than me. It's a big challenge because we're raising a generation that is addicted to technology. But how does the Torah address that? The Torah addresses that every single morning. We wake up and we start from nothing. And we say, Thank you, Hashem, for what? For giving me my soul back. And thank you for giving me my eyesight. And thank you for giving me the ability to stand upright. And for, for being able to, I mean, you think of all of the incredible things we take for granted every single day. And that is why the Jewish people have an obsession with happiness. Because we don't let a single piece of pleasure, a, a single experience of pleasure, pass us by without saying thank you. Yeah, you're about to eat something. Stop and say a blessing. Don't just enjoy the food and don't say thank you. And when you're done with the food, don't just run from the table. Say thank you again. Because we don't want to have a single experience in our life that is pleasurable that we don't say thank you for. And Talmud teaches us, just like you praise God for the things that are pleasurable and are great, you also thank God for the things that are challenging and troubling and unfortunate. So if someone loses their, their ship, guess what? There's a blessing to say. Someone loses their fortune, there's a blessing to say. You know why? Don't forget who you are. Your relationship with God shouldn't change because you have more money or less money. On the contrary, when you have less, many times you're able to connect on a much higher uh, bandwidth than when you have all of these distractions. And the things are good and the wealth is, 
it can be great too, as long as it's put in the context of using it to develop that relationship. Our sages tell us that the, the purpose of materialism is to elevate it. Elevate the materialism. You see, Abraham, when he bought a field from uh, Ephron, what did he do? It says, Vayakams de Ephron. As soon as Abraham acquired it, the land got elevated. doesn't mean he picked it up, but it got elevated because now he took it to a whole spiritual level. We can take a coffee mug. A coffee mug can be a terrible thing or it can be an amazing thing. How do we use it? Our car. You can drive a Bentley, but when your neighbor asks you for a favor, you're going to say, uh, I don't really want to lend out my Bentley. Or is it, you know what? It's just a car. Use it. Please have it. No problem. Go, go take care of what you need. It's not a problem. Or is it going to be a limitation to our ability to help other people? So, you know, the, the Talmud tells us that Messiah, Mashiach is going to come riding on a donkey. <laughs> it's the most, I mean, come on. We're living in the 21st century. Right, we can get him a nice, uh, you know, stretched Hummer. We can get him a private jet, but really, he's going to come riding on a donkey. So we know that the words in Hebrew, particularly the names of animals, were given by Adam with a very specific intention. A dog is called a kelev because it's kol lev; it's all heart. We know that every single animal. I can go through a whole litany of of animals and give you why their names are their names in Hebrew. Adam didn't just throw a name, elephant, kangaroo. He gave a name that defined the essence of the animal or the character of the animal. We know that when you want to call someone dumb, it's uh, one of the names of a donkey that you call because a donkey is one of those animals that has less character than almost any other, than any other animal. It's just, it's just a, a glob of meat. It's just a schlepper, right? It just schleps things, right? A horse has character. It gallops. It has royalty. So it has the, the name Sus, which is Sas, which is joy, which is, it has like this giddy uh, type of uh, element to it. A donkey really doesn't have it. You want to call someone dumb, you call them a donkey. So what is, is the word for a donkey in Hebrew? It's called Chamor. Chamor is the same exact letters as Chomer, which is materialism. And our sages tell us, Mashiach is not going to come riding on a donkey per se. But he is going to teach us what it means to control materialism. He is going to be in control of the materialism. And if you think about it in our generation, there's nothing more apropos than being in control of the materialism. Look at the world we're living in. We're living in a world where materialism is completely controlling us. It's very difficult for people to have balance in their life. All of Torah is teaching us balance because it Anything too much, you know, I love barbecue potato chips. I love barbecue potato chips. And even barbecue potato chips, which is so enjoyable, you cannot eat a full bag of potato chips. Because you eat a full bag of potato chips, you're going to get sick to your stomach. Balance is the key. And the Torah teaches us everything about balance. You you know, you think of any pleasure in the world. Too much of it is not going to be good. There must be a balance. Torah lifestyle isn't just a few individual activities that comprise our day. It's not a bunch of different activities. It's a way of life. You know, it's a a phenomenal story I want to share with you and contrast it. Lahavdil, Elef Alfevdal is not to compare between holy and unholy. The great Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, who passed away in 1986, was known for his character. I'll tell you two quick, beautiful stories. The first is a woman once called his house a few hours before Shabbos. And we know that every Shomer Shabbos home is very hectic before Shabbos. It's, you know, a lot going on, cooking, getting everything ready for Shabbos, setting the table, you know. So 
she calls up a few hours before Shabbos. The rabbi wasn't exactly right by his phone at the moment. One of his students picked up the phone. He says, hello, Rabbi Feinstein's uh, office. And the woman says, hi, can I please speak to Rabbi Feinstein? So you, so the student says, you know, Rabbi Feinstein is busy at the moment. Can I help you? So she says, yeah, I, I was just calling to find out what time candle lighting is. To which the student like, well, you know, you don't need to call Rabbi Feinstein for candlelighting time, you know, he t- tells her the candlelighting time. You don't need to call Rabbi Feinstein for that. You know, Rabbi Feinstein is very busy. You can just look at any Jewish calendar. To which the woman responds, I don't know what you're talking about. I've been calling Rabbi Feinstein for the past 25 years, and he's never said anything about calendars. That's the humility of someone who is understanding, right? You're talking about a scholar who finished the Talmud over 400 times, who every single Shabbat finished the tractate of Shabbat. In its completion, its entirety. I mean, you're talking about one of the greatest Torah scholars of our, of our generation, and he had the time to take with this older woman. She probably opened up a phone book and said, oh, I'm looking for a rabbi. She picked out Rabbi Feinstein and called him for, for what time candlelighting is. And every single Friday for 25 years, he told her nicely, and she called back the next week, and he told her again nicely. So this is this is Rabbi Feinstein. One time, Rabbi Feinstein, you can imagine when he would leave the yeshiva and walk to the car, so he would get like this whole escort of people asking him questions, taking pictures. You know, my son is having a bar mitzvah. Can you give him a blessing? And so on and so forth. And people would huddle around him as he was walking to his car. He gets into his car, and they, they, they finally they close the door, and the driver drives off to take him to his home. And... When they turn the corner after they leave the yeshiva, the rabbi asks, Rabbi Feinstein asks the driver, he says, do you mind just stopping for a second? And the driver stops, and Rabbi Feinstein opens the door and pulls his hand out of the door. They close the door by mistake on his hand. So the driver says, you know, you waited all the way till here. Why didn't you tell me back there to stop? I would have stopped the car and you would have pulled your hand out. He says, can you imagine how embarrassed the individual who closed the door would be? If he knew that he closed the door in my hand, he said, I would never want to embarrass. And now let me contrast that. I saw a video just a few days ago of the Pope and he was greeting people and a lady grabs his hand to shake his hand and he pulls his hand away with an angry face. Like, what's your problem? Where's your, where's your respect? Where's your honor? And he's like, that's the contrast between a great rabbi, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, and what they call a great Pope. I mean, the world of a difference. Here's a man who's filled with Torah, a man who's filled with walking in the ways of God, who the kindness is overflowing, and a man who claims to be holy, a man who claims to be righteous, and yet you see that his character is flawed on every level. We, we should never compare between holy and unholy, but to me, I saw it and my eyes were popping. And I'm like, this is what they call holy? This is what they call righteous? They obviously have never seen a Torah They've never seen a righteous Jew, if this is what their idea of holiness is. Torah and the mitzvot is not about individual actions. It's about the entire person, the essence. I heard from a rabbi who actually went swimming with his rabbi. They went swimming back in, 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 in Poland. He said he learned more from the dignity of how he swam, of how he carried himself, than, than all of his lectures. He says, you saw a man of holiness. You saw a man of righteousness. You saw a man of dignity, right? You think to yourself, like, what? He's just swimming. You know, it's funny because the Talmud says that there was, a, there was a great sage who heard that there was someone in Jerusalem who they claimed was the Messiah. He had the, the characteristics of the Messiah. 
So he sent his son-in-law, he says, please go check him out, see if he indeed carries those qualities. Son-in-law comes back after his investigation and he says, he's not. He says, what did you see in him that determined that he wasn't the Messiah? He says, I saw the way he was laying down. He was laying down supine, you know, like on a beach chair, you know, stretched out like in a, like in a you know. He says, the Messiah doesn't sit like that. He sits with dignity. I saw my grandfather of blessed memory. I saw him sit on a beach chair. His feet were on the beach chair, but he was sitting up forward with his, with his book and studying. He, couldn't, he can't lay back like that. That's not a way that a... Now, there's not, no sin, but to just give a concept that someone who re- realizes and lives with the presence that God is right in front of me at every moment, how can I lay like that? He said, this man is not Mashiach. He's not. I can tell just by the way he sits. The dignity that he doesn't carry doesn't allow him to be the Messiah. The, the presence of God is, is that tangible as it should be, that if you were in front of the president of the United States, why would you act in any way less than that at all times when you right. know you're in the presence of the you king? Know, if you want to see the dignity of our elected leaders or, you know, did you ever, ever, I, 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 I challenge anyone to look all over Google Images, to look anywhere on the internet to find a single picture of the Queen of England eating. I guarantee you, you will not find a single picture of the Queen of England eating. You know why? Because our sages tell us that eating is a matter of dignity. We learn it in our, it says that someone who eats in the marketplace is compared to a dog. You see people walking around in the mall eating their pizza. There's no self-dignity. There's no self-worth. Now, that doesn't mean you have to hide in your house, but there should be a sense of dignity. You're a holy person. You're a human being. You can accomplish so much and you treat yourself like you're a dog. In the middle of the marketplace, you can just eat like that. There's something wrong. Since I work here from home, I'll go grab something out of the fridge, stand over the sink, eat it, and then just go back, wash my hands and go back to work. And I was reading just like in the Shukran Rukta, no, that's not the way you eat. You treat yourself like a king if you want to be treated like a king and sit down and, and eat in a dignified manner. That made total sense. A hundred percent. And then let me ask you another question. How will you enjoy your food more when you're sitting in front of a table properly? Even food can be a vehicle to make your life holier. And food is a vehicle. We have to understand that the, the, the whole concept of blessings, it, it's a remarkable idea. That, you know, it says that anyone who enjoys from this world and doesn't say a blessing first, he's a thief. Now, I don't know about you, but I pay my taxes. I work hard, earn an honest living, and I, I even give charity. And now you're telling me I buy an apple, I eat the apple, but I didn't say a blessing first and you're telling me I'm a thief? What, what, who did I steal this from? I paid for it. I, I, I did everything I needed to do. Why am I a thief? Is it because you're stealing from yourself? That's correct. You're stealing from yourself the opportunity to be happy. Because when you eat that apple and you don't stop and say, you know something, I'm the luckiest man on earth that God gave me an apple. If you don't stop and appreciate that, you're limiting your joy. If, you, if a man doesn't stop every single day and say that same praise that we do for our food to their children, to their spouse and say, you know, I'm the luckiest man on earth that I have you as my wife. I'm the luckiest man on earth that I have you as my child. Then you know something? We're missing out on love. We're missing out on on joy. We're missing out on living a fulfilled and enriched life. So we're stealing from ourselves. So when we sit and we say, you know, with, 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 with proper respect, we, we respect ourselves you know, I'll tell you a story. There's a whole topic I talk about in, in my uh, Musr classes about kavod, which is honor. And many times people think that when you're talking about honor, it's talking about honoring other people. And we focus on honoring ourselves. 
giving ourselves the due dignity that we deserve as human beings. And we're talking about the way one dresses, the way one talks. You know, I was once giving this, uh, this series, and one of the individuals I was learning with privately, an executive that I learned with, he says to me, do you think I carry myself with a dignity? So I said, you know, I think you do. I think you always dress appropriately. You always carry, carry yourself properly. But if you're already asking me, I want to ask you, do you think the way you talk represents who you are? I said, you're a CEO of a company and every third word you say is a foul, is a foul word. How do you think people look at you? Is this a person who respects himself? If every word that comes out of his mouth is inappropriate, that's not, that's not dignified for who you are. People look up to you. And he said, huh, I never thought about that. I dress the part. Oh, I have to dress dignified. I would never give a presentation in front of all of my workers without a suit and tie. Great. But what's about the way in which we talk? I drive up to New York every summer with my family and I drive back down at the end of the summer. My kids go to camps there and my wife is there with her family. And it's, it's a great time for my family, you know, reignite their relationship with all of their cousins and so on and so forth. It's very nice. On our way back, we have the same experience every year. And that is when we pull back into Houston, my wife says, you know what, maybe we just stop over here at the supermarket and we pick up some bread and some milk so tomorrow and cereal so the kids have uh, for breakfast tomorrow. And here I am, I'm dressed in shorts and t-shirt. And I say, okay, I'll run in. But I can't run in because I am a rabbi and people see me as a rabbi. And so my wife's like, come on, you know, it's like, it's not a big deal. I said, you know what, it's not even for me, but perhaps for my students. For them, I'm the one I've t- uh, who they're learning Torah from. I'm representing Torah. I'm representing them. And I happen to be representing myself. I always have my dress pants and my dress shirt, pull it out, get dressed properly, and then I'll go in. But the idea is not because I'm trying to fake it, but because if you represent something, you have to dress the part. You have to, and it's not only dressing the part, it's acting the part. Let's circle back to what we said before. As a Jewish people, we represent what Torah is. We represent what God's people is. We have to carry that with honor, with dignity. And we have to properly represent what it means to be a Torah Jew. I want to share with you a study they did in Jerusalem. In the old city of Jerusalem, the streets are very, very narrow. So if you're walking on the street, I mean, it's like there's the wall and there's the street. And there's really not much uh, sidewalk. So if you're walking on the street, the cars cannot drive by. Israel is not known as a place that has people who are extremely patient. So if you're walking on the street, they'll likely honk their horn at you. Except... They found in this study that if you're wearing dignified clothes, they'll sit and wait patiently. So if you're a uh, Armenian, uh, whatever they call their leaders, a priest, right, and you're wearing the long robes, they won't honk the horn at you. If you're a rabbi and you're wearing a suit and tie, they won't honk the horn at you. If you're wearing clothes that are dignified, but if you're wearing a, your jeans and T-shirt, they'll just honk you. Get out of the, get, get out of the road. There's a certain respect that is commanded by the way in which we dress. Now, again, I don't want it to be superficial that it's just the clothes. But you know that it's very different uh, when you walk into a client's office and they're wearing a suit and tie and they're wearing uh, shorts and flip-flops. You know that there's a very different presentation that is required for one than the other. Right. If I, I do a lot of public speaking. I was just yesterday speaking. And sure, if I walked out on stage not wearing a suit but wearing shorts and flip-flops, they certainly would have taken me seriously. For one, they would think that I don't take myself that seriously. That's correct. I, I'll tell you this, okay? It's a little bit embarrassing, but when I moved to Houston, I didn't understand this concept. It's almost 15 years ago. And I remember I once walked into an executive's home 
And he was, again, we were very close friends. And he said to me, he says, you know something, Rabbi? I don't think you respect yourself. I'm like, what? Excuse me, right? And he says, look at how you're dressed. You know, he says, your jacket doesn't match your shirt and you don't have a tie and you don't have, and you got to get new shoes. And he was right. It was hard for me to hear it, but he was right. And from that day on, I wear a suit and tie every day. And I, I also moved to white shirts because I'm not very good with the matching thing. But the idea is that it's not about me and my image only. You have to realize that when the difference between being just a Joe Schmo on the street and being someone who is a, a respected person, people expect a certain level of self-worth. That self-worth then translates to how you respect others. Because if you don't respect yourself, there's no way in the world you'll respect others. And that's where it really boils down to. If I don't properly respect myself, there's no way in the world I'll respect others. So I'm a nobody, so I can talk about everybody else and call them a nobody because, you know, but if you have a proper respect for yourself, then you say to yourself, you know what? Lashon hara. I'm not, the Torah forbids us to speak slanderously about other people. But if I don't respect myself, I certainly don't respect others and I'll talk freely about other people. But the minute I have some, you know what? I wouldn't like if someone spoke about like that about me. I certainly wouldn't like if they said that in a way, in a place or in a time where I can't defend myself. Why am I speaking about others when they can't defend themselves? Why am I speaking about others negatively? I wouldn't want that either. So the idea is much further, much deeper than just how we carry ourselves, but really translating that to how we deal with other people and how we respect and see other people. That makes sense. Uh, Let me ask you a question. I I, I want to, for most of us Jews, we're outside of the community. And a lot of things have been said to me as I have become more observant over the years is people referring and saying, asking me if I'm now a Hasidic Jew. And my response is, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't know. I know I study Hasidic texts like the Bom Shev Tov and Rabbi Nachman. But there's a lot, I think, misunderstanding because you have like here in Houston, you have Chabad, you have Yer Aruv, but they're all just Jews studying the same Torah, fulfilling the same mitzvah. Explain a little bit about where those different cultures come from, just for those of us who are outside the community and are a little perplexed by it. Okay, so let me, let me give you the 30,000 foot overview, Okay. You know, I've had the question asked to me so many times, why are there so many different sects in Judaism? I mean, you have, just from the Hasidic dynasties, you probably have a thousand different Hasidic dynasties. You have Babov, you have Bells, you have Satmar, you have Vizhnitz, you have Karlin, you have Chabad, you have, I mean, Chabad is one of about a thousand different Hasidic dynasties. I mean, you talk about Satmar, the largest, Gur, I mean, you're talking about hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Hasidic followers. It, it really is unbelievable. Why, why do we need so many? So you have to understand, first, is there's a hus- historic perspective to it. There's also, a, I think, a very beautiful aspect. You know, when the Jewish people were in the desert, God divide them, d- divided. Jacob had 12 sons. They're called the tribes. Each tribe had its own group. They had their own flag. They had their own leader. But what is forgotten whether it's all of these Hasidic sects, whether it's the 12 tribes, is that we always had only one Torah. So it doesn't make a difference if they wear this type of hat or that type of hat or no hat or this type of kippah or that type of kippah or this type of shoes or that type of shoes. It really doesn't make a difference. At the end of the day, they all believe in the same exact Torah. 
And that's the number one most important thing that counts. Are we observant of the Torah or are we not observant of the Torah? That's at the end of the day, you know, I, I always say that I don't believe in orthodoxy. I don't believe in reform, conservative. I really, I think it's all baloney. I think it's, you know, that's where we pay our membership dues. But that's, that's not real. What really is important, are we growing or are we stagnant? And I don't care what Hasidic sect you're part of. If you're not growing, it's a problem. I don't care if a person's not a member in any synagogue. If you're growing, that's what counts. So I think we, we've, I would go to those people and say, Hasidic, what, what does that even mean? Is, does it mean that I'm investing in my relationship with the Almighty? Absolutely. I'm proud to be considered part of that group, whatever you call them. But um, when you get to the nuances of how, you know, this one has this type of, of payas and this one has that type of payas and they curl it like this and they curl it like that, they have it behind their ears, they have it in front of their ears, they don't have, what does the Torah tell us? The Torah at the end of the day tells us we cannot cut our side locks with a razor. That's what it says. I have payas behind my ears. Most people don't even realize that I do till I tell them that I do. That's what the Torah tells us. Does it tell us that we should have it, uh, you know, a long beard? It doesn't. There's no mitzvah in the Torah that says we should have. That's with the individuality. Exactly. The Torah. The Torah doesn't say not to cut your beard, and to, it doesn't say, say that you should grow the beard. It says don't cut it with a razor. That's what it does say. So if you can find a shaver that is a kosher shaver, by all means, the Torah doesn't say that you shouldn't. You understand? So there are many levels beyond that. So why do why do many Hasidic people grow their beards? Because they want to be extra cautious and go above the required measure. Great. We say, the more you add, the more you'll be praised, the more you'll be blessed. But it's, is that the requirement? That's not the requirement. And we have to very carefully, you know who was the first one who tried to be a chassid? Eve in the Garden of Eden. Because what did God tell her? God tell her, don't eat from the, from the, from the fruit of the tree. And what did she do? She in, translated it as well, don't touch the tree. She added to it. If she would have said, you know what, God said not to eat it, but I'm going to make an extra measure not to touch it. That would, be, that would be great. But that's not what she did. She changed the rules. And once the snake pushed her on the tree and she touched it, and hey, nothing really happened. You see, you can really eat the tree as well, eat from the tree as well. And that was the mistake. Don't add rules when you don't know what the real reason behind it is. So tell me a little about in the, the outreach world. Is it becoming, do you feel like you're overall and throughout the country from talking to colleagues who do this, that there's greater and greater momentum being built? Or are there more challenges out there now? It's very interesting because we've been doing a international study to try to figure out the dilemma of the Jewish people right now. And we, there is a consensus that since the advent of the iPhone, Jewish outreach has become much more difficult. Because why do I need a rabbi when I have Siri? I can just ask what's the right thing to do, what's not the right thing. So what happens is, is really people have become much more distant. But isn't that okay if someone wants to observe a mitzvah and they can find the answer online? Yeah, but what happens is, is that the way you grow is with a relationship as well. Once you remove that relationship with a rabbi, with so you, you remove all inspiration as well. Now, that's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is that you have much more available today with the advent of technology. You have, I mean, just in Torch, we have over last year over 270,000 downloads of our podcasts. You have hundreds of thousands of views of our videos. So with the challenge, you have also the the availability. But on the other hand, we find that the yeshivas in Jerusalem 
are empty. They're not as full as they used to be. The ones with the students who would come, it used to be, I wouldn't say a piece of cake, but it used to be a very easy transformation. You meet a young professional, he's intrigued, he's inspired, he wants to learn, he wants to connect. No problem, get it, put him on a plane and send him to yeshiva in Israel. Today, I have a job, I can't leave my job. People have become much more complacent, much more complacent. I don't know if it's specifically because of technology, but we certainly have seen a huge uptick of that complacency where people just don't, I'm fine. I'm fine listening to Kiddush on my phone. I don't need to actually know how to read it. I can just have Siri say it for me. It's it's become sort of like this suburban jewelry in our own lives, you know, so I don't, I don't need to go to synagogue on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. I can just watch it. That's becoming a very, very big challenge. So what do you think about the other competing aspect that there's so many labels and other isms outside of Judaism that Jews identify with? Liberalism, conservatism, environmentalism, communism. Their identity is so entrenched in those ideals. And in some of them, there's some truth, whatever truth, where they reconcile with Torah. And a lot of times there's not... And a lot when people grow up with a certain, you know, ideology, it becomes it's not just something they say I agree with. It becomes part of who they are, and it becomes very. So, how do you? Let, let me tell you about Judaism. Okay, Judaism is not a religion. Judaism is a relationship, and I believe that all of the other isms are either. I mean, they need to be categorized as either something which is bringing me closer to God or distancing me from a God. All of this secularism, or the isms you're talking about, what is the real motive there behind it? Is the motive there to show how we, mankind, are in charge of this world, and there is no God, which is the vast majority of the isms? Is a God, a creator of heaven and earth, who has expectations of us, and has a relationship that he wants to build with us, through the, these channels that he's given us in this world, and primarily being the Torah. The Torah is the guidebook. It's the manual for how to connect to the Almighty. So all of the isms, and we're finding more and more of the. You know, I had a guy come to me sitting at my Shabbos table, and he says to me, uh, you know, Rabbi, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an atheist. I'm like, really? So as he was walking out, you know, I was walking him out after the meal. It was just it was a friendly, you know, just said, just, by the way, I'm, I'm an atheist. So I told him, you know, I'm really intrigued about your atheist, you know, beliefs or non-beliefs. So I said to him, as he was walking out, we have this little bench, a kid's bench right outside our front door. And I said to him, you see this bench? So he says, yeah. I said, do you know how, how it got here? He says, you bought it in a store and you put it here. I'm like, no, silly. It just appeared here one day. I said, it dropped from heaven and it just landed right here. He says, that's ridiculous. I said, I'm, I'm, I'm not kidding you. I said, this is how this bench got here. It was just totally out of the blue. It just one day just appeared. And he says, but that can't be. I'm like, really? A bench can't really appear here just by itself? He says, things don't just happen like that. Didn't you just tell me a few minutes ago that you're an atheist? And in atheism, what do you believe? That there is no God. It just happened. Or they, they're, they're. I said, how can a bench get here, not get here on its own, but this complex universe? complex human being, a complex world that we live in. And you're telling me that there is no God? Well, so I told him, you know, the God that you don't believe in, I don't either believe in. Problem is you have the wrong idea of what God is. And now we can have a conversation. He's like, you know what? All right, let's have a conversation. Let's talk about this. 
the problem is that people like to fall into these isms because it's easier. It's a lazy way out. I'm just an atheist. Ooh, you must be intellectual. You must be, a, you know, you must be so, you're not an atheist, right? You're just, you, you don't really know what, what it is to believe in God. You don't know what it means to have that relationship. Yeah, people do associate if you say you're agnostic or an atheist is that you are beyond biases mm -hmm. and that you are an intellectual. It's a sad world we live in. The first is, Dan, I want to just thank you for uh, giving me this opportunity to, to schmooze and to connect and to be in your beautiful home. And uh, I, I, I also, I think that this is an incredible journey that you and your family, your incredible family are embarking on. And it's very exciting for me. It really is because, you know, I get infused with energy when I see you and your family because it's not every day that you see someone who is taking this journey seriously and seeing that it's, it's not just a given. It's, you don't just download a file, say, make me Jewish, you know, make me inspired, make me, you know, religious and connected. There's a lot of challenges that go along the way. And to see someone who takes it with a smile and takes it and to see you learning Wednesday nights with your study partner and you're all in and you're immersed in your study, it really is. It, it's a remarkable thing to see and to witness that transformation. But additionally, I want you to always be encouraged there are many, many, many trials and tribulations that we all f face. You know that there's one person who doesn't have any challenges, and that's the dead person. As long as we're living on planet Earth, we hope our heart rate, our heart, you know, if you look at the EKG, it goes up and down, up and down, up and down. Can it just go straight? Well, yeah, it could, but then you're dead. As a human being, you will, we will all inevitably face challenges. We have ups, we have days that we're on top of, on top of the clouds. And then we have days that we're down. But we have to always remember that even when things are down, we're about to go up. And to never give up on our dreams, on our hopes, on our vision of what can be accomplished. And I, I really, I, I, I consider it an absolute honor to be here in your presence. Uh, and Shauna and Elsie are just phenomenal team players, all doing this as a family and, and growing. It really is exceptional. It's really, it's motivating, it's exhilarating, and it's very, very exciting. Well, thank you, Rabbi. You and the other rabbis at Torch have been an invaluable resource to us because we've had so much to learn coming from knowing literally nothing to helping us now get to this, basically the, the doorstep of actually moving into community and fulfilling all the mitzvot and being your neighbor. And we're really looking forward to it. We're very excited. And I, I'm, I'm offering this to you and to all of your listeners on this podcast. You can call me 24-7. You know, I, we, we ran a program for many years. It's called Kosher Month, Kosher Awareness Month. And it was the month of March. And we would have all of these uh, signs and, and uh, uh, in all of these, in Costco and Walmart and in, in, in Sam's Club. And we partnered with Kroger and Belden's and Randall's and all of these local supermarkets all of the caterers, the kosher caterers, the restaurants. It was really a phenomenal month where people can come and try kosher food and, and experience and, and have tour guides of, of, you know, how to find, how to identify kosher food, et cetera, et cetera. And one year we did something which was called, it was a little play on Overeaters Anonymous. We did Kosher Eaters Anonymous. And I, I, would, I would love to run the program, to run that, that little support group. But a woman who was new to kosher herself over the years, uh, we asked her to facilitate that group. And she said something that was so remarkable. I would never have come up with this in a million years. So one of the people asked, but, but I don't understand. I really don't know what to do in a kosher kitchen. I have no idea. So uh, what do I do? I'm going to get stuck inevitably. So she said, what do you think I did? She said, 
Well, as soon as I moved into the community, I got the rabbi's cell phone number and I saved it on my phone. Every single time I had a question, I called the rabbi or I texted the rabbi. And I'll, I'll tell you, I can show you my phone right now. I have probably 25 or 35 messages that I get on a regular basis from people of a picture of a kosher symbol. Is this acceptable? Is this not acceptable? What should I do with, I, I used my, my mil, milk spoon in my chicken soup by mistake and I mixed this and I mixed that. What do I do? These are common questions that happen in my home. My wife says to me always to get out of the kitchen because I'm trafing up her kitchen, right? <laughs> so, but it's, these are questions that are very common. They have every day and, and you need a, and you need an answer. You, you're welcome to get, take my phone number, my cell phone, speed dial me anytime, 24 hours a day. I will be happy to, to, to assist you. If I know the answer, if I don't, I will make the phone calls to figure it out or ask or learn through and, and do my research to find out. That, that's where you guys have been so helpful. Just last Sunday when I had the realtor come out here and then Shauna left, the realtor and her husband left, and the lady that came behind was laid taking the photograph. So I found myself in my office with a woman in my home. And knowing the laws you could, I realized, what am I supposed to do right now? So fortunately, I have yours, your brothers, Rabbi Cohen, Rabbi Busco on my phone, I immediately started calling. I know many of you were teaching classes, but I got Rabbi Busco. And I said, I'm in the backyard. What do I do? And he said, that's fine. Just stay out there until she's done. But there's situations where I don't have time to go pull my book and research and just and getting those answers, especially when we first start observing Shabbos, when we're getting ready, we're so nervous about things we need to know. Just, just knowing that we could get an answer like that was invaluable to us. So thank you. And I want you to know that I have had phone calls from other rabbis calling me and telling me, particularly about Yehud, uh, which is that a man who's not married to another woman should not be alone with her. And it's, it, I think it's very pragmatic, but the Torah understands the nature of human beings. And a man with a woman who he's not married to, there could be something that can happen. And the Torah says to avoid getting into a situation, don't be alone. So what do you do if you're a rabbi and you're going to meet with female students? It could be a problem. That's, by the way, why in the Torch Center we have windows in every room. Precisely for that reason, because if a woman comes and she wants to speak privately with a rabbi, there is no privacy. There's a window. And there is no, there's no such thing that you can meet with a rabbi privately. I actually had a woman who came to me after class. She said, Rabbi, I need to see it's a personal matter. I need to meet with you privately. I said, I'm sorry. I don't meet with women privately. You can meet with me either in my home when my wife is home, or you can meet with me here at the Torch Center. She says, no, it has to be private. I said, I can't help you. Find someone else. I cannot meet in private. I don't meet. If you're my wife, I can meet with you in private, but no one else. And unless it's in a public setting where other people can be there, but because that's precisely because, and it's ironic that Harvey Weinstein's case just started today in New York in court. That's because without having those protective measures that the Torah gives us, anything can happen. The Torah understands the nature of mankind. So I get a phone call one day from a rabbi, a prominent rabbi in Houston, and he says to me, Rabbi, I'm going to teach a class right now in this woman's home. And I want you to be aware, this is the exact address. Come in anytime. And that's one of the abilities that you can do to el eliminate this idea of yichud, of being alone, because you don't know if one woman is going to show up or if 20 women are going to show up. You're going in for a class. It could end up being a setup. It's just you and this woman, and you could be accused of, of something that is. So the idea of him calling me and giving me that information, that now he has a fear. And he has a fear that I might walk in that door any second. So if it is him alone, he wouldn't do anything. But it is even more than what you, you may do, but there's this whole hashtag Me Too generation where innocent people could have been accused, and if they had just used these laws, they would have, those accusations couldn't have been made if they were just accusations. 
3,300 years since the Torah has been given, it's never been wrong. Well, thanks again, Rabbi. I appreciate it. I know you have a busy day, so I'll let you get back to it. Thank you and have a terrific day. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Torch so they can continue to spread Torah wisdom to the world by making a donation at torchweb.org and clicking Donate in the top right corner of the page. And if you would like to get in contact with our host with comments, suggestions for future topics of learning, or questions for him or his guest rabbis, you may email him at president at torchweb.org.